This is Counterculture with Marie Busky. Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture. I am Marie, your host. My second guest this morning is Tim Mitchell, founder and chair of Hartford College in Australia. Good morning, Tim. How are you? Good morning, Marie. I'm, I'm excellent. Before anyone asks, okay, Marie, why are you talking to a founder and a chair of a school in Australia? Well, there's a very good reason for that. You have a fascinating story about Hartford College. How did a parent like you end up helping with other parents found a school and the reason behind it? What's the genesis of this project? I think the genesis is a general feeling amongst parents over the last, say, 15 years that boys' education standards have been declining inexorably, slowly in this country. Um, in our part of Sydney, there are some traditional schools, large schools, and, and I'm not pointing the finger at any of those schools as being um, below standard, but I think there were sufficient numbers of people that thought, well, let's try and do something different. Let's uh, look at what's happening globally. We've observed a trend, I'd say it's a wave in some countries of um, what's called character education, the character education movement, which in part is based on a, a traditional liberal arts, some call it a, a classical education, um, and also fused with a, a model that really tries, strives to develop the individual. So part of the development of the individual boy is really part of, of, of that of that boy's character. Of course, this applies to girls as well, but in our case, it's a boys' school. So what years are you doing from? Is it from 0 through 13 or...? We, we started years 5, 6 and 7 this year. Um, we would have started earlier, but the pandemic knocked us around a bit. We, the project really got going in about 2020, but of course, starting a school is not, a, not as easy as falling off a chair. So... Um, we wanted to start last year, but uh, as it turned out, we started this year, mm-hmm. five, six, and seven, and we'll add a year on until we get to year 12. Right. Every and year. So what sort of a role, I mean, how many boys are we talking? 22, 22 to start with, so it's a small school. Um, I was a little bit daunted by the size of it, but everyone I spoke to that started the school says, you've got 22, that's great. We started with 13 or you know, 15 over the years. So. Um, I'm quite happy uh, that we've got 22 and uh, things are looking good for next year in terms of a pipeline of boys that are, or families that are interested in coming to the school and we'll fill up numbers in year five next year. Six is not a natural jumping point. Um, seven is a natural point, year seven, when you know, uh, families are looking for a new high school for their son. So I expect seven will fill up again bigger next year and, uh, and we'll have a new eight, year eight class. Wow, that's fantastic. So liberal arts, let's go back to that because that's what really intrigued me when I had a look at your website because it looks like that you've actually founded the school on what are the foundations of traditional Western values, the enlightenment values. So how did you go around developing the curriculum to fit those values away from the current curriculum that you were on offer for state schools, for example? We we had a very good look at what's being developed in the states in particular. Of course, in America, they're not constrained by state-sanctioned syllabus or, or curriculum. Um, so there's a real potpourri, I suppose, of different curricula developed over there. We wanted to see the ones that have worked 
best. Um, we came across one called In Memoria Press, which is, a, 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 I suppose, broadly a Christian approach to traditional Western liberal arts. Um, we, we've seen that that has developed very strongly, and then we knew that we had to comply with our NICE, what's called New South Wales, you have the New South Wales Education Standards Authority. So there is a state-sanctioned syllabus. Um, but that's not um, that's not unduly restrictive. There are things in that that you'd expect in Australia. There are some indigenous um, studies that are required. But, you know, as in New Zealand, you have Maori studies. There's um, studies that put us in the context of Asia, um, and that's that's all good. I mean, I think in, if you go to a classical liberal arts school in America, you'll find similar things. You'll find they study indigenous. Um, American Indian culture, just because that's their their place, and there's some deference to what came before European settlement. Um, otherwise, um, the usual things that you'd expect. I mean, the syllabus is broadly quite good. The challenge for us, however, to create a curriculum is to and create. Notice I use the word singular. A curriculum for a school is um, is a singular thing. It's an organic thing. Um, and the whole is greater than the sum of all its parts. It's not just, you know, a bit of chemistry, a bit of physics, a bit of English, a bit of history, a bit of religion, in our case, being a Christian school. It's not just all these different silos. It's working out how we can connect all of those together. So that was important um, from the get-go. It was a fundamental ethos that we wanted to inscribe in our teachers is that all the teachers are working together talking together, communicating constantly about how all these different subject areas interact and overlap. So um, long-winded answer to your question, but trying to come up with a unique curriculum that is still compliant with the NISA syllabus, but there is sufficient latitude in that in that syllabus that allows us to come up with a, a unique um, version that achieves our aims, which is um, really trying to uncover uh, the great body of work, which is which is what Western culture is built on, warts and all. I mean, it's not all it's not all great. We, we some people sometimes think if you're advocating Western culture, then you're somehow being elitist. I, I I think the contrary. I think there's plenty of things that are you know in the West we we don't want to be proud of, but then but then there's plenty of things, plenty of people, great literary scholars and poets and philosophers and scientists. Theologians, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Plenty of people that we can look back at and think, "My gosh, you know, these are these are unique, incredible people in our history that have influenced our, our culture." We want our boys to know that ideas influence influence culture, and they need to um, to, to look back and, and see who these these great uh, individuals are. As as uh, Isaac Newton said, "I stand on the shoulders of giants so that I can see further into the future." Mm. Yeah, and and also too, I think currently now with the pandemic and and all the changes that have happened since that time, there are a lot of things that I don't know about you, but I get a sense of deja vu, and yeah. I wonder to myself that that old saying again: those who don't study history are then fated to repeat it. So I think it's so important to have those history studies there uh, for young men especially and what are some of the things that you do differently particularly with young male education I said to you before we got started I have two sons 
And I have my boys at a single sex school very deliberately because I believe that that gives them the environment to be and grow as young men. What are some of the things that you do at Hartford to help develop your fine young men? I'll give you a short answer, which might lead to other questions, because um, I think we are doing a few things that are unique. The first philosophy that we espouse is that parents are the most important people in the school. Part of the challenge is making sure that all the parents that come to the school understand that. They, they actually are the most important people. And the school's there to augment what the parents do. As parents, we're all responsible for our children and we, we want them to grow up and be the best human beings they can be and make the best contribution they can make to society. Parents are the primary educators and the, we want a symbiotic relationship. As a, The school wants to have a symbiotic relationship with the parents. Now, that doesn't suit all parents. Obviously, we've had lots of people that have come and kicked the tyres of the, the school, Hartford College, and decided for whatever reason it's not for them. So we are looking for parents that want to be part of that close relationship with the school. Now, how does that work practically? It works with our mentoring system. Each boy has a mentor drawn from the teaching staff, and the boy meets with the mentor for, say, around 15 minutes every two weeks. Now, that could be just sort of sitting in the playground or, you know, going for a stroll around, around the oval or, or just very casual, very natural, but one-on-one. -on -one. And the mentor's picking up, building up, to, building up some trust with that boy because he's an adult who's looking after each boy, a bit like a caring uncle, I suppose. Well, probably a better example is we all as adults <clears throat> are familiar with mentoring, most of us. You know, when you leave school, you go... You go to some professional job and there's usually someone in some capacity that gives you some mentoring. Well, we're trying to start that process from year five in our case. And then the mentor meets with the parents each term for a full hour. So that's a commitment from the parents. Each, each The parents come along and, and sit with the mentor and they just talk about everything, really, everything they want to talk about. And it could be from, he really is messy in his bedroom. Well, yeah, that might have a connection with, the standard of his work at school in some way. Well, the, so the, the parents and the, and the mentor, they're sort of teasing these things out. And the mentor is, um, you know, talking, giving tips because the mentors are very experienced, but also liaising with the teacher or teachers. It's a fluid uh, conversation, which is all in the best interests of the boy ultimately. I guess that brings in the wider distractions, isn't it? There's a lot of distractions for young men now. By having that involvement with both parents and mentors at school, it creates a very, very clear space for boys to think and develop. Yeah. Do you do you get that feeling with the young men you're working with? It's a, it's a huge challenge, you know, the screens and so forth that are distracting boys this, these days. And I think most people are onto it, but most parents probably struggle with it. I mean, I know we do. Where our youngest son goes to Hartford and he's got older siblings. And of course, you know, you know how difficult it is trying to control a young boy uh, keeping away from all the multiple devices that there are around the house. Well, you know, we're not we're not overly strict about that, but we just are constantly saying, you know, don't spend your whole weekend sitting on a screen and, and do other things. And you have to you have to block those opportunities to some extent. And I think most parents are alive to the need to do that. I think a boy that didn't have some sort of discipline in that area is going to get picked up at our school and the mentor is going to try and work with the parents to to address it. Mm. But yeah, I mean it's it's probably the number one 
challenge, I think, at the moment is, you know, boys spending the whole weekends or the whole holidays, you know, gaming or um, my son has, a, has an absolute passion for um, air traffic control at the moment. So if we left him there, he'd spend his whole, you know, holidays, which we've just finished, we've just had three weeks of holidays, I'm sure he'd spend the whole time happily on a computer um, interacting with who knows what <laughs> around the world, you know, flying planes in and out of airports. Which is, yeah, it's, it sounds like it's a, a pretty sensible thing to do. It doesn't sound very dangerous. It's more just the disproportionate amount of time that can get spent on a screen. So walk us through some of the differences with your liberal arts approach. So here at the philosophical movement is quite big. So Steiner schools, uh, particularly in the area that I live in, there is a the nexus for those schools here. That philosophy is often very student-led, but it also, as you said, your son has a love for air traffic control. So it will use that as a vehicle for other learning. How do you do that a little bit different with liberal arts? Because I know with liberal arts, there's a lot of focus on history and the lessons of history. How do you sort of tackle that within the framework of a curriculum? Well, philosophy is compulsory from year five at our school, as is a language. It's in year five and six, it's more French, but that's that's melding into Latin as well. So by the time they're in high school, they're doing Latin and French. There's a, a great emphasis on reading. So we actually have reading times during the day. Just, I think just trying to cross-fertilise ideas, events in history. I wouldn't say history necessarily is more important than others, but an example of where they might interact might be they're talking about the ancient Greeks and uh, our philosophy teacher might mention Aristotle, Plato, Socrates and inform boys that have never heard of these figures before that these people were alive about 400 odd years before Christ. Uh, around about that time, uh, the world was trying to, starting to move out so they start to touch on things that they've learned about ancient history, uh, starting to move outwards from the Greek Empire and then that eventually melded into or well, became the the Roman Empire was the dominant empire. So they're talking to each other in, in those sorts of uh, subject areas about things that are corresponding. Everything in, in term one will correspond in terms of the moment in, in history that it occurred. We're not at this stage yet, but later on, let's say in physics, they start to touch on subatomic physical forces or the, the fundamental forces of the physical forces of the universe. How does the idea of a quark moving in a subatomic uh, space relate to Aristotle's prime mover theory, for example? You know, it gets it gets the boys thinking about ideas, but also connecting those ideas very much when appropriate, when relevant to the real world, to, to the world of science. Yeah. So I mean, Archimedes, for example, would be yeah. someone that would crop up in your curriculum. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So do the boys get engaged with that? Because they must, when they talk to their peers, their peers are saying, what? You know, are they loving it? Is that something that they get excited about? My son came home after a week at the school and I said, what's the, what's your favourite subject? He just said philosophy, which astonished me. I was so happy about that. I, yeah, they do. They do. And the feedback, from I don't talk to all the boys, but I, I hear what my son tells me. But I talk to most of the parents and the parents are typically saying things like, you know, little Johnny's turned around 180 degrees this year in terms of his desire to to go to school and his, his interest in learning. He loves going to school to learn. Mm-hmm. So, yes, the answer is yes, they are. They're, they're engaging with this method very much because they've come from somewhere where for some reason, and I don't have a microscope on every single 
family and boy, they, they have been quite unhappy with their school experience from where they come from. How do you find finding educators? Because if you've got educators that have come through the normal grist of the mill, mm. and I'm assuming the education sausage factory in Australia is not too different to the one here, how do you find those really top quality educators for you boys? Is that a, a challenge? That's a massive challenge. I mean, we're still still so small that I think we haven't felt the real fight on, on that. But I'm aware that broadly, both in the state system here and the Catholic system, I'm not sure about all the independent schools, but in the big system, they are really starved of teachers. But that, I mean, that's a broader problem generally anyway. But I think your question is more directed to, well, what about the type of teacher that has this kind of liberal arts ethos or, you know, that sort of grounding? The, they, I'm picking, you just wouldn't pop a, pop a teacher like that off the shelf. No, you would have no. to work, do a lot of research to find someone with yeah. that level of knowledge uh, teaching. They're right, mm. without a doubt. I don't think you could start a school with, with 25 teachers and expect, you know, to find 25 teachers that fit the bill like that in Australia at the moment. Um, if you're in, a, in America, I think you would, because uh, they're probably two or three decades ahead in this respect. But they have that wonderful liberal arts tertiary tradition. Which we're starting, I mean, I want to, I'd like to sort of talk about that too, but we're starting to see that emerge here, especially in Sydney. We've got institutions like um, Notre Dame, Campion College. There's a Ramsey, a wonderful Ramsey scholarship in, in an arts degree that's at the ACU in North Sydney, which is um, focused on, on the Western tradition as well, a liberal arts degree. And in, in Western culture, Western civilization, they call it. So if we can produce boys that are ready to sort of hit those degrees like a duck hits water, I think um, I think it'll be a wonderful outcome. At the moment, there's a there's a gap, I suppose. <laughs> More than a gap in the market, it's a generational gap because over the last 50 years, we've seen education move a long way away from that more traditional classical liberal arts emphasis. But, you know, they're, they're coming through as well. I'd, I'd say that there's people coming out of those universities that I just mentioned that are keen as mustard to, to work at a school like ours. You know, they just think that's what they're trained for and they, uh, they yearn for the opportunity to be able to, to teach uh, kids uh, in, in disciplines that they're trained in. Mm. It's interesting you should say that because I know there was a report that was released here a couple of days ago and New Zealand, the citing has the most expensive on average, tertiary education now in the world more expensive than uh, the United States. And wow. this is for universe, university, so it doesn't take into our politics, but for university. Now, we don't have a lot of universities here. My youngest son is, I, let's put it this way, if I was in New South Wales, he w- would be falling over broken glass to be at Hartford College. I just, he's, history's his favourite subject. He's, you know, he loves Marie, Marie, I think well, I think I need to put that quote on our website. What you just said. <laughs> he honestly, he would. He and, and we had a conversation over the weekend, and we were talking about universities. And he's uh, got this year plus two more years to go, and he's worried. He's worried. He's not. He's what I call a middle of the bell curve kid. When he concentrates and focuses, he can do. You know, he's a good worker. He's diligent. He loves learning when he's engaged. He wants to go potentially into writing and journalism and media, but he also feels very strongly about having a good grounding in the classic liberal arts and classics in order to see a a wider picture and have some perspective. 
and his fear. And he said to me, he said, mum, I'm worried about going to university in New Zealand because of the identitarian nature of it and the prevalence of all of the social sciences, which have now pervade everything. So you're now starting to see, as you said, universities breaking away from that. And suddenly there are some, so that's, that's exciting. That yeah. gives you, you know, I mean, Hartford become, can become a feeder for those schools. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it becomes a goal. And I mean, just drawing back from that for one moment, 80% of the Australian Stock Exchange's top 200 countries, 80% of the chief executive officers have what you'd broadly describe as a liberal arts degree, or, or they have an arts degree. I, I did an arts degree myself at Sydney University way back in the 80s, and, and I found it mind-expanding, having gone to a meat and potatoes school where you did your physics and chemistry and maths and English and history, and but you didn't really know a lot about what we call a liberal arts education. So what that tells you is that, that a liberal arts degree uh, somehow teaches you to think, it, it gives you a broader perspective, and it's a great grounding for going on and specialising in other professional you know, degrees if that's what you choose to do. And I think this is America's great advantage, but they've, they've known that for a long time. They've got this wonderful tradition of having a, an undergraduate liberal arts degree, which you know, most people who go on and do professional degrees in law or medicine or engineering or science, they, they often do these liberal arts degrees to start off with. Um, and then employers in turn look for that. You know, they look for that, that capacity to think outside the box. Albert Einstein, um, said that, um, he wasn't the greatest mathematician amongst his peers, but he'd had a liberal arts education, and the liberal arts education was what allowed him to look at look at reality from a different perspective. It allowed him to sort of build on the, the, the purely scientific interpretation. So easy to get off the topic. I've, I've actually uh, moved away from your question entirely. You'll have to bring it bring me back to it. No, it's it's. I think it's really important because critical thinking is something in education that is being further and further removed. I find that in this country, it's becoming very doctrinal and it's starting at a younger level. So the interaction between student and teacher to actually expand their minds is becoming less and less. And I, as I said to you before we got started, I have our sons within the Catholic school system and I have to say the Catholics here do, do a great job and we are really very, very happy with uh, where our boys are at and the interaction that they have with their teachers and they're challenged and they're forced to, as you say, have that out-of-the-box thinking. Mm. Is that a driving force? Is that one of the things that parents are coming to you for is to actually have their sons looking at the world from all different elements and perspectives? Because what I don't know what's like currently in Australia and the political climate, but here that focus has gotten exceptionally narrow. And when yeah. you talk to any young person at university or even at high school, they are very focused or very have opinions and thoughts in a very narrow band, and they struggle to even discuss or entertain any ideas that sit outside that focus. Yeah. As societies, we have to be extremely wary of producing solely for vocations, ensuring that students get sufficient input so that they come out, they get you know spat out of the sausage machine at the end and, and they can fit a hole where someone needs to vocationally fill that void. I think that's probably one of the reasons why boys' education has been sliding 
I mean, it's big picture, but times have changed so much in the last 15 years for women. I think there's enough natural aspiration amongst young girls to sort of see educational as a wonderful opportunity to do anything they want to in life. Whereas boys, if their sense of education is that it's just to come out and become a, a job filler, you know, an engineer or a mechanic or, or whatever it is, I think that is deeply disheartening for a lot of boys. Not all, but we're talking about wanting to produce education that strives for the best. And part of, part of the mix when you're educating to try and get the best from your children is you want them to develop a love for learning itself. It's not just learning things to get a job. It's learning the art of learning and, and loving that process. I suppose in, in one simple sense, that's what we're trying to achieve. And that's what liberal arts is. If you go back to the medieval or even the, the ancient interpretation of, of what, of what it is, it, 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 it comes from the Latin term, which meant the art of liberty, the, the art of being free. So being, being free to, to learn about truth, being, being free to learn about beauty, being free to learn about the wonders of our created universe around us. Mm. And also, too, learning doesn't need to be confined just between nine and three, does it? And the liberal arts education, actually, I think, fosters that. I know our oldest son has a number of learning difficulties and challenges, but he's bright. He loves to learn and be engaged. And he has very severe dyslexia. So audiobooks for him, his world just opened up mm. uh, when the access, easy access to audible content became available. Thank goodness I have a subscription term because honestly, the content that this kid mows through is massive. And it's wonderful. And he'll often come back and he'll say to me the most random things. And I'll mm. say, well, where did you hear about that? And he said, oh, listen to a book. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> He's doing that, you know, on, on his own time. So because yeah. he enjoys enjoys doing it. Are you starting to see achievement now from those first students that have come through the school? Are they How are they finding the transition from Hartford College onto tertiary education? Yeah, this, it's too early to tell, really, because we're only up to year seven. Um, all I can say is turnaround that I get, as I said before, that the parents report to me is is 180. That's the typical thing they say. It's a 180 degree turnaround. One mother who's got a media background like you <laughs> said to me, um, you must be putting a doppelganger, a, a dead ringer, as we call it in Australia, in my car every afternoon. He looks like my son, but it's it's, it's a different boy, you know. <laughs> He, he totally changed his attitude to uh, to school and, and learning. So we're very happy with those results so far. One plan we've got in place is to develop a real nexus with the nearest university, which happens to be the New South Wales University. It's really only a couple of tram stops away. Here in Sydney, we'd say it's the best STEM university in Australia, of course, because we wouldn't concede that to Melbourne. And it's a, it's a great uh, research and, and STEM university. And we want our boys to, um, to, to be involved in programs where undergraduate students at university, they might be doing engineering. I mean, often these people are, you know, just brilliant at, at maths and, and different sciences. We want, we want our boys, once they get to a certain stage, probably by the time they're in, well, well the middle school is year five to eight, but probably by the time they're either in year eight or year nine. We'll start that process where they're starting to 
sit down in a, in a more formal arrangement with university students and see what universities do or go and go and look at research that, that the, university, the university is doing so they're starting to um, understand um, the connection between what they're doing now and where they might end up in the future what advice have you got because setting up a school is not everybody's go-to mm-hmm. when they're challenged but there in this country we saw homeschooling increase uh, I think it was across 2020 2021 by 400%. It is still increasing. Now, I have interviewed another woman who is in the main system, but she also has resources for people who are opting to teach from home. But there are little, what I call learning hubs beginning to form in this country. So if you are someone like, if you're in in New Zealand, Tim, you're frustrated, what advice would you give to parents on this side of the ditch in terms of either gathering other parents together or pulling together a curriculum and some learning in order to take your children into another direction? Well, going off what some of the experienced teachers have said to me, what was learned out of the, the pandemic was schooling from home just doesn't work. You know, sitting on a screen, having a classroom with multiple screens with these poor kids sitting at home, that that's not a good model. Homeschooling, yeah, wonderful. There's some, some great... Um, examples of people that have been homeschooled. I do wonder about the socialization aspect though. I, I think I think that's a, a hurdle that then has to be jumped later on in life. And that I, I don't know enough sociologically about whether that is insurmountable in some cases or not. But um I think people that are homeschooling that are in a in an area should should be talking to each other. They should be um forming a collegiate approach to this and and trying to come up with common curriculum interpretations that, that suit their particular ethos. You never know. I mean, maybe it's possible to to, to get a school started. In in Australia, there's been schools started on the, on the uh, fringes of Melbourne and Sydney in recent years um, with the Christian ethos. There's um, one in the planning, which is which is going to be an independent Catholic school called the Sir John Henry Newman um, School in Brisbane. Um, that's probably two or three years away. It's horses for courses. In our case, a building became available that used to be a school that stopped being a school in about 1991. It was used for another purpose, and then it became vacant. So we went and approached the landlord and said, "Well, hey, can we can we lease that school off you on on friendly terms and get a school going again?" And as it all panned out, we were able to do that. We're we're in a, an established part of Sydney. Sydney's a quite a big city and um, we're not on the fringe by any measure we're, we're in a, an old part of Sydney I've heard of examples in overseas I've heard, heard an example in Sao Paulo in in, in Brazil where um, a very old traditional school I think it was run by an order of nuns or something or maybe priests it was one of these beautiful old schools but it you know the population had moved on there weren't any young families there anymore the church I believe ultimately just put the site up for auction and this group of families got together and they just passed the hat around. They, you know, some of them were quite inventive financially. And they turned up the auction. And the last thing they expected was that they would buy it, but they bought a school <laughs> and uh, started a school in this beautiful classical old situation, but very much in the same vein as what we're talking about, where they wanted a, a traditional liberal arts approach. They wanted a, a strong Christian ethos coming through the school in a, in a place where 
the church couldn't offer that anymore. It's really horses for courses, you know. Yeah. It, it, you just have to be creative, inventive, and somewhat opportunistic. I think. What denomination do you? What denomination? Uh, Hartford College is is an independent um, Catholic boys' school. Uh, we're not part of the Catholic system, so we teach the Catholic religion in a way that's very complementary with everything else that's going on. I mean, the, mm. the Catholic Christian faith is very much part of the Western story, so I don't think I don't think there's um, a great needs to be a great degree of debate about that. But we're open to anyone, so we're we're very sort of clear that on the religion side, to, to the extent that religion's taught, they'll get that that traditional Catholic teaching, which we hasten to say is complementary with everything else that's being taught. So if the parents don't like that, well, then they probably aren't a great fit because it doesn't, it doesn't really matter if, if, if one of them's um, Muslim and the other one's uh, Caledonian. Um, if, if they're open to what's being taught, great. You know, the, we want that symbiotic relationship. But if they're not, if they're not open to some aspect of what is being taught at, at um, the school, that's really part of what we try and go through with every set of parents. We sort of try and say, look, this is what we're, we're teaching. Um, we hope that that works for you, and it's in, you know we think it's in the best interest of your boy. Religion is very much a thing, an aspect of freedom. I think. It, um, religion or faith is not true unless it's it's freely adopted so a boy who's got no christian background is most welcome at our school if he decides to embrace christianity to some degree that's his choice you know it's, it's a totally free thing that he may or may not do whilst he's at school or he may do that 70 years later <laughs> I've done a lot of interviews uh, with educators, both within the Christian, uh, independent Christian space on this show, and also too with uh, pastors. And I mean, I'm an agnostic, but I strongly believe the values instilled by Christianity are just as important, like as you said, like philosophy and history. They are part of the fabric that make up a civilized Western society. So having a Christian foundation is obviously, a, a, to me, very logical within a school or a faith-based um, spine of a school. And I can understand now why the, having parents so actively involved would be crucial in making this work. Because if you're not deferring uh, yourself into an integra integrated status with the state or with the federal level, you you rely, don't you, on that parent-teacher, school-teacher, board-teacher relationship in order to make this work. Yeah. So it's very much a community. Yeah. Um, faith gives a school an extra dimension, and there's many different faith-based schools in Sydney, many, many different types, um, and they often seem to work well. I'm aware of a um, a school you'd probably describe it as more evangelical. We're a Protestant Christian in the western suburbs of Sydney where there's a huge Indian population. So they're coming from a, a Hindu background, most of them. But the, the that particular part of the demographic loves this school because they see it as the best school in their area. It, it's offering an education that, that tries to develop the whole person. You know, the religion's not a problem for them. No, exactly. So if people that want to find out a little bit more about what you're doing at Harvard uh, and maybe potentially emulate that across here, how do they find you? Where do they get that information from? Um, the, the website is <clears throat> hartfordcollege.nsw.edu.au. So if you don't have time to write that down, just uh, Google Hartford 
College Sydney. I'm sure you'll find us. Um, there's quite a lot of information there. Please jump on to our, um, our uh, email list. Uh, just subscribe to the email list and you'll get a, a regular communication. Sometimes it's a message of, uh, which goes to liberal arts and, and philosophy. Other times it's a message about an event this, this weekend coming. We've actually got a, a wonderful speaker called Dr. Karen Bolin, who has written a number of books um, about education, more in terms of what she describes as virtue ethics. I, I call that really good habits. <laughs> She's a guest speaker. We, we've got, there's a symposium with three great educators, uh, Dr. Andy Mullins, Dr. Tim Wright, who was principal of Shaw, one of the big GPS schools uh, with an Anglican tradition in Sydney. Um, he's speaking at that symposium too this Saturday. So there's we've got events like that on. Yeah, please get in touch. Um, send us send us an email. More than happy to um, to share knowledge. Get jump on a you know video call. We've actually got an advertisement at the moment out for a principal for the school. So we're looking for a long term principal. The principal we have now, wonderful experienced educator Frank Monagle. He uh, he won't be with us for you know for like the ten year horizon. So that's why we're um, looking for one of those rare liberal arts uh, imbued leaders. Um, so if there's one around in New Zealand, um, I'd had to poach that person off you, but um, <laughs> just give us a call. <laughs> I was just going to say that we're booking the first plane ticket out. Um, you better be careful. Yeah. Uh, hey, look, it's been an utter delight. Thank you for giving up your time today. I've been talking to Tim Mitchell from Hartford College in Sydney. If you want to have more information, I'm going to make sure that that website is given to our wonderful Liz at inbox at realitycheck.radio. If you have any comments, make sure you send those along to 2057. More to come here on Calendar Culture, including my mate Marty up next with Media Matters. And then, of course, we've got the Woke Word of the Week. So stay around. This is Counter Culture with Marie Buskey. Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio.